Well, we are in the thick, thicker sections of Isaiah, trying to get to Isaiah 35, and don't want to bypass. The temptation was to just skip these sections, and I can't treat God's word that way. However, we will try to sidestep some of the verses that have more to do with the days that Isaiah lived in than, than what are <clears throat> helpful to us. And so, uh, we begin in chapter 15. We'll try to get to 17 tonight. God rules the nations. That's the title. And that will probably be the title till we get to 35. Anyway, as the song goes, he's got the whole world in his hands. And that's what uh, is being demonstrated by the prophet. And much of what he had to say has come to pass in his lifetime. And then another wave would come Jeremiah's prophecies concerning Moab, for example. Nations are people, made up of people, and mostly they have been against God. Ultimately, it is not overlooked. Sovereign justice looms over those who insist on making up God. Well, verse 1, chapter 15 of the prophet Isaiah, the burden against Moab. And he goes on to say is, is that Moab is laid waste and destroyed. And see, that's how I'm going to try to skip some of the verses to, or words to uh, let us move through a little bit more quickly. Uh, Moab is in modern Jordan. So if you're looking at a map of Israel uh, to your right, which would be the east on the map, there's the Jordan River. And right across that river is Jordan. You can stand in Israel, you can look over and you can see Jordan. And this, these, at, in the days that Isaiah lived, it was not the kingdom of Jordan. In his days, it was, you know, Ammon and Moab and Edom. They, they were on that side, these different peoples. Well, those peoples are gone now and have been assimilated into the Arab peoples. And the Jordanians are essentially Arabs. Uh, so they factor in big to the end time. And hopefully we'll get to that this evening. Uh, and these, again, Moab is mostly Judah's neighbor because the northern kingdom to the north, Moab's territory was more to the south on that side. And when Israel and Judah were strong, well, they dominated and they controlled the region. But they messed up because of their idolatry. Now, the, Moab, the Moabites, as with Ammon the, to the north of them, these were the creation or the, uh, the outcome, the production of Lot in his incestuous relationship, though it wasn't voluntary on his part. That's covered in Genesis 9. Uh, most of the time, the Moabites were the enemies of God. And we've got to stay on them a little bit because the Moabites come up in chapter 15 and 16. And uh, these are the people that sound like they're ready for a snack. Moabites. Okay. <laughs> you might remember, moving right along, uh, King Balak, he was a Moabite king, and he tried to get the Gentile prophet Balaam to come curse the Israelites, and it just wouldn't happen. It kept backfiring. And, of course, Balaam was the prophet that spoke to the donkey, and the donkey spoke to him. I have no problem believing that story whatsoever. 
and uh, he, he ended up being killed by the Jewish people because he became an apostate prophet. Uh, he was never a prophet of Israel, but he was a Gentile prophet. The Bible calls him such. I know some, some like to debate, well, was he really a prophet? Well, I just gave you my answer. Anyway, the Moabites, uh, or the people of Moab, well, that's where Ruth came from. She was the great-grandmother of King David. So they have a part in Israel's history, a big part. The book of Ruth takes place mostly, or at least in the beginning, uh, it takes place in, in Moab, their territory. Um, of course, they worship man-made gods. They were idolaters through and through. Uh, not Ruth. She, we, you know Ruth, that speech she makes in the first chapter is just one of the magnificent verses in all of Scripture. Uh, but as I mentioned, many of the judgments occur in Isaiah's day, but we should not forget who Moab is because they factor in to the end time story. Pride was what brought these judgments on them. This, what, what is interesting about this prophecy in these two chapters on, on these people is that all the other judgments God hurled at the peoples in that region for their evil, with Moab, there's this emotional you know, this pathos, this sadness, uh, empathizing with Moab or, over her self-inflicted judgment. God is saying, you know, I've got to judge you. Justice demands judgment on you. And it breaks my heart. You were that close uh, to being with my people, but you, you turned against them. Uh, so that's why we're going to come across that. Just looking ahead at verse 6 of chapter 16 in Isaiah, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall be no more. God is saying it just, you, you maxed out your grace. Now it's going to be judgment. Other prophets talk about them too. Verse 2 of, of Isaiah 15. He has gone up to the temple of Dibon, to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nabal, or Nebal. On all her heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. Verse 3. In their streets... They will clothe themselves with sackcloth. And on the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Verse 4 now, moving ahead. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. And so here the prophet is expressing the grief that is going to be upon these human beings when the Assyrian invasion gets to them. Uh, they will go to their temple and pray to their gods, but it will not help them. Now, what I like about this mention is Nebo. Mount Nebo is in Moab, right across the Jordan. And it is where God took Moses and said, look at the promised land. If you go to the Temple Mount, you can, in Jerusalem, you can see Mount Nebo. It's only 30 miles away, that. Uh, and you can see the mountains from many more miles than that. Anyway, you can see Mount Nebo. It's this looming judgment of the law over Jerusalem, over all Israel. You know, and you would think that the Jewish people would look at Mount Nebo and say, that's where God took Moses to show him this land. That he forfeited entrance because of his misrepresentation of God in a position of leadership. 
You would think that that would be an effective reminder. Uh, in Israel, you look at Mount Nebo from Jerusalem, you get chills. You're like, look at that. That's where God took Moses. What an amazing, an amazing uh, uh, situation. God, and God knew. He could have took him to other mountains. He didn't have to take him to any mountain. But he takes him to Nebo where the people could, there's this lingering monument of Yahweh. Anyway, Isaiah, he heaps up the names of these places that I will try to skip as we go through. It's characteristic of Isaiah because he was a knowledgeable man. He, he, knew geog- he had geography down packed in that part of the world, and he lets it out. But he creates the impression with the troops, crying, the, the Moabite troops crying here, this impression of this widespread disaster that is coming upon these people as a judgment. Uh, verse 5, my heart will cry out for Moab. This is the prophet speaking, but it is Yahweh speaking through him. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer, for by the accent of Luith, they will go up with weeping, for in the way of Horonaim, they will rise up a cry of destruction. Now, these places, they're not, we, we don't need to pause on will, where this one is and that one is. That's not the, the big part. What's big about this is Yahweh's grief. He does not delight in this judgment on evil, but the, the, the alternative is, is worse, to let evil go unjudged. And so he himself, God, empathizes with the Moabites. Now, the three-year-old heifer implies it's in its full strength, and so that's what they, that culture, they would have understood that connection. Uh, But now, uh, you know, the sackcloth. In verse 14, God will say, in three years, this is going to happen. Isaiah will will say, it will take three years before these things come to pass from the time that he utters these prophecies. God is not the cause of suffering, but he has also not obligated himself to stop all evil. He will ultimately, but in the meantime, uh, sin is manifest in creation. When you consider, you know, nature, nature's violent, it's very violent. We miss out on that a lot because we live in, uh, you know, developed areas. But when you think about, let's just say a grizzly bear... A male grizzly bear will kill the female grizzly bear if he has to, so he can eat his own cubs. Not all the time, else there wouldn't be any more bear. But this happens. And this is crazy. It's insane. It's evil. And it's not the only animal doing crazy things like this. This is sin. This is what Paul meant when he said, We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Paul is saying, accept this fact. You have to accept it. Sin has done its work, and now we are in damage control mode. The objective is to get to heaven and bring as many people as we can bring. And the way to do that is by submitting to God through his son, by the time the New Testament comes along, of course, through Messiah, through Christ. And this is our mission. So when you, you know, there are those people that think that they, you know, going to go hug a tree in nature's, and these, this is the essence of paganism. Paganism is the worship of creation without even calling it creation. They call it, they call it nature. Again, there's no such thing as mother nature. So uh, uh, anyway, um, 
this in this section, Isaiah uses 14 different uh, references, some sort of lamentation. It bothers him that these people are going to be judged. And as a Christian, I can't lose sight of this. this it, it, you know, I'm not supposed to have, uh, I'm not looking to dance over on the grave of my enemies when they die. God warns against that attitude. However, I can be certainly relieved that they're no longer a problem. But I'm not going to throw a party. Anyway, verse 6, For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, for the green grass has withered away, and the grass fails, and there is nothing green. Well, that's the scorched earth. That's just, uh, it's just devastation. How could you live in that environment with this, under these conditions? Verse 7, Therefore, the abundance they have gained... And uh, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. And still they, here they are, this picture of frantic refugees trying to, you know, take what's important to them you know, as they abandon their homes and their, you know, their cities. Uh, and it is not going to help them. Verse 8, for the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to those places there. Verse 9. For the waters of Daimon will be full of blood, because I will bring more upon Daimon, lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. So, of course, the great slaughter, the carnage because of the Assyrians. Uh, the lion is, is used as a descriptive title for uh, the human rulers that will be fierce and merciless. And unstoppable. Verse six, uh, chapter sixteen. Now, now we come to the continuation of Moab's judgment, and we see Moab as a type of those who almost enter the kingdom of God, but opt out, um, having a form of godliness and, and never entering or coming into its power. Verse one: Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness. To the mount of the daughter of Zion. So, from Selah, which is, again, on the east side of Jordan, to the south in that wilderness, uh, that's where the leaders of the Moabites are going to flee, trying to get away. And the prophet is saying to them ahead of time, join with Judah. Go to the people of God. Send this uh, lamb of submission, you know, in a, a sort of a token that uh, we are going to submit to your authority. Uh, we are going to join with you to avoid the terror of a, of a greater enemy, the Assyrians. Well, they're not going to do that, but the prophet is offering them an opportunity to escape these coming judgments from chapter 15. He's, he's offering this in chapter 16. Uh, this uh, Selah is near Petra, that rock citadel, that natural rock citadel uh, in the territory of Edom. Edom, Moab, and Ammon, all in Jordan, all factor in to the Jews' future. And as I'm going to approach it, and we'll get there in, this, in verse 4, but not yet. Verse 2 now. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. And you'll notice those are Fords, not Chevys. How can you not say that? It's spelled the same way. Anyway, 
instead of fleeing to Judah, they're, they're trying to survive. And here they, the, the refugees, the women seeking shelter, but not coming over to the daughters of Zion, as mentioned above, or to Zion, which is Judah at this time. Uh, verse 3, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Keep a low profile to escape the coming judgment this, to the refugees seeking asylum, who again will not go to Judah for it. They will be thinned out as a people greatly by the time the Babylonians come out. They, they will be completely absorbed. But that's, that's later in Jeremiah's day. Uh, if they did come into Judah, this is a big point about these kind of studies in the Old Testament when you come across these ancient peoples being slaughtered because of their evil, and God saying, well, come to Judah. Well, he certainly doesn't mean come to Judah with all your idols and your bags and your heart. Bring them into Judah and leaven Judah. He doesn't mean that. He wants them to submit to the prophet of Yahweh, to Yahweh as God of creation. What they would have done is, if, if, if they could, was they would have come in as they were and spread their idolatry. Well, that did not happen, but it is an interesting point that God makes the offer, but we, we know that it is all about truth with God and not a green light to remain as you are. And, and that's one of our messages to the lost. Listen, we can go say to a lost person that doesn't know Christ. It is not God's will that you remain the way you are concerning Jesus Christ. That's what Moab did concerning Yahweh. They, they remained pagans and Chemosh, their God. That's who they worship, not Yahweh. And sort of the prophet saying, well, you've been offered. Uh, they would have gotten these prophecies to them. Uh, the, the words of these prophets were, were circulated. Verse 4, let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at hand. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Well, these two verses change everything. A very perplexing section. Uh, you know, who's the speaker? Translations are a little different here. Uh, they take out the personal pronoun, let my outcast. And yet the meaning is the same. Even if you do not insert the personal, uh, that, that pronoun, uh, it, it doesn't alter the meaning. This is an outburst of a far fulfillment of prophecy. This is something that goes into the millennial reign. And, you know, some of the commentators won't commit to it. I'm going to commit. Uh, 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 you know, I'm not going to sit there. Well, it could be. I know what this is, and I'll, well, I'll at least tell you why I'm sure of my, my opinion. And these are good commentators. Again, I, I don't read the bad ones, but I don't agree with all of them. Uh, as, none, as they don't agree with all of them. That's part of it. That comes with the territory. It... Um, it's, it's sort of like being buddies on the same baseball team, then you get traded to an opposing team. You're still buddies, but you're going to play hard against each other. You're still going to try to get, uh, you know, your team to win. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, the appreciation for one another. Anyway, the context comes to the rescue, which is the case throughout Scripture. 
the context says, okay, this is what I'm talking about. Because if you context out of the text is pretext, it's wrong. You just you can't do it that way. Verse five rescues verse four from confusion. Otherwise, it's just a random insertion. Verse 5 is just a random insertion about Messiah. No, it's not a random insertion. It is, it is a timestamp for verse 4. It is telling us verse 4 has to do with the end times. Verse 4 has to do with the Messiah and his kingdom. Verse 4 has to do with that child of David. That is the Lord over David. The Lord said to my Lord. And so we know that, Psalm 110. And so the setting of verse 4 is is last days because of verse 5. It's a millennial messianic verse. Otherwise, again, that's just random. Why would he bring up the Messiah? Well, I just said why. Uh, The only way it makes sense to me. And I'm, again, going to approach it that way. This looks to the future relationship. You say, okay, well then tell me how does it connect Moab to the future? It connects it to the Jewish people. That's how it does it. What's going to happen to the Jewish people before Messiah comes? And what does Moab have to do with it? And Petra and Edom's territory and Amnon to the north. Well, I'm going to read the verses that tie all this in. Because Antichrist will try to exterminate Christians and Jewish people when he comes into that three and a half year mark. And absolutely loses it, as we would say. He you know, just completely goes into darkness, on a, just another level of darkness that opens to him. Now, Daniel 11, verse 31. We don't have time to go into all the verses, but this is just, a, uh, I guess, some of the primaries. Daniel eleven thirty-one, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there an abomination of desolation. Now, this is originally fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes, that Syrian ruler. But Jesus said, long after, and over 150 years after Antiochus, he says, this is going to happen again. It's going to happen in the last times. And it's going to be the devil's work. And then the apostles come along and just tie it all in for us. They splice it very nicely. The splice is so smooth, you can't tell where the seams are. Believing Jews, at the time that Antichrist defiles the rebuilt Jewish temple, the third Jewish temple, you have Solomon's temple, the one Zerubbabel built, and then Herod expanded, and and that was destroyed by the Romans. And then you're going to have that third third temple of, of the Jews. And Christ, we know that because Christ tells us that There's going to be a temple, it's going to be defiled, and it's going to be the end. In Matthew 24, which deals all with the end time. That context of Matthew 24 says, this is all end times, and I'm telling you. So the believing Jews, there will be Jews that will be converted because of the work of the two witnesses and the 144,000 Jews. They're going to be hard at work preaching Christ. The Jews are going to be coming to Christ. They're going to be leading Gentiles to Christ. The church will be gone. There'll be no more public worship uh, in, in the true sense to Christ. All the public worship going on will be uh, paganized and uh, Antichrist uh, will be honored. The the apostate church will be live and well until Antichrist destroys it because they're going to hate. That's the whole, the woman rides the beast. 
any of, of revelation. Anyway, coming back to this, the believing Jews are going to heed the warning of Christ when they see that this abomination of desolation take place in that third temple. They're going to leave Jerusalem. They're going to leave Israel. Where are they going to go? Let's look at what Jesus says, because Jesus is the one applying Daniel, which is already pre-fulfilled and fully fulfilled in Antichrist. Matthew 24, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, hey, Daniel just said that, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Is it, is it any more explicit than that? Standing in the holy place. And then, then parentheses, whoever reads, let him understand. That's Matthew inserting that. Because Christ wasn't writing it, he was speaking it. Matthew says, if you read this, we were paying attention, you pay attention. He says, Jesus now speaking again, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Which ones? Israel is nonstop mountains. Which one is he talking about? Well, again, Jesus applies this to Antichrist. Uh, Antiochus, you know, he defiled the temple of the Jews in 130, 167 years before Christ he was, was, was born in the manger. Isaiah indicates where they're going to flee. Moab is one of the refuge places for them. Now remember our verse, verse 4. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the executioner is at, ha- is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. When is that going to happen? What's going to happen? And then, of course, he kicks right into the mercy of Messiah's throne in the very next verse. So we come back to the scripture. We say, okay, they're fleeing to Moab's territory, east, which is modern-day Jordan. Jordan fits the bill for this refuge. Uh, as I mentioned now, Edom, Moab, Ammon. Here we go, Daniel eleven forty one. He shall also enter the glorious land. He's still talking about this Antichrist and Antiochus. The glorious land is Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. Remember that little horn rises to power, tramples the other ones? I mean, he's, just a, he's a beast. He continues in Daniel eleven forty one, Many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Amnon, the Jordanians. You see how prophecy just comes, and, and Israel and Jordan right now real, enjoy a really good relationship with each other. Uh, you can take a bridge right from Israel right into uh, Jordan. It doesn't take much at all. This is uh, quite remarkable considering the influence of Islam against Israel in that region of the world. Jeremiah rings in on it. He also prophesies about Moab. Uh, he's a hundred years after Isaiah, so Moab is still on the chart. He says, yes, I will bring back the captives of Moab in latter days, says Yahweh. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. Ethnically, this has nothing to do with the Moab, Moabites. It has everything to do with that territory. Who is in that territory? That's why you get symbols in the book of Revelation and other prophecies, because the symbols don't change. A hawk is a hawk. You know, uh, uh, a lion is a lion. A lamb is a lamb. The, the imagery doesn't change with the culture and language and whatever else. Well, the territories remain the same. 
And in the days these prophecies were spoken, the Moabites were there. In the end times, there will be the Arab peoples, which the Moabites have been mixed in with. Revelation chapter 12. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This is Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, that's Herod, the great wicked one. He, you know, he he slaughtered the innocent children of Bethlehem, trying to, to, to kill the child. It continues in Revelation chapter 12. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Well, that's Christ. That's the crucifixion. Also, his lordship ruling with a rod of iron, which the millennial reign will be. Caught up to heaven is his ascension into heaven, where he is on the throne. There's a 2,000 year gap between Revelation 12, 5, 4 and 5, and Revelation 12, 6, which is the next verse. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, Israel, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Well, these numbers just tie everything, go off the chart. That's three and a half years. Jesus comes and sits on the throne and judges righteously at the end of that period of time. 1,290 days from the time Antichrist comes and defiles his temple. That 30-day gap is the the sort of uh, fitting everything into place that is is necessary to establish uh, the details of his his reign. Because there's a lot of people going to be here. There's going to be people not going to know that there's going to be people sleeping in their hut while this stuff is taking place. And but they're going to be awakened. <laughs> they're going to all be dealt with. Daniel twelve eleven, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. That's the thirty days more than what Revelation talked about. And it's not a discrepancy. It's a little bit more information. David, King David, he placed his parents in Moab. To safeguard them from Saul. And that was a typical foreshadowing of this end time refuge in Moab. Again, Moab's not the only place. The Jews are not all just going to be in that territory that was once Moab. They're going to be spread out a little bit. Some are going to be up in what was Ammon's territory. Just where Moab's northern border ended, Ammon's southern border began. And uh, where the southern border of Moab ended, Edom's border, northern border began. So these three are connected geographically on a map, regardless of the people. The Edomites are gone, they're not coming back, but their territory, that's been permanently stamped onto the map. So when God says Edom's territory, or Edom, we know what he's talking about. When the Romans came along, they moved some of the Edomites across to the wilderness of Judah, and that's why it can get a little confusing, but that's not how it originally was set up. So, David, again, when Saul was chasing him, and David was hiding in the wilderness, he got his parents to Moab to keep them safe from him. And so all this, again, explains... Verse 4, let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab, be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler or the devastator. That's Antichrist. 
I love how it comes together. And I do get a little annoyed why the commentators don't rush to agree with me. They should be writing. Rick is right. Anyway, <laughs> the idea of taking refuge in caves is not unprecedented in modern history. Maybe not in this technological age, but certainly in this modern age. In World War II, the Jews hid for almost uh, two years in the caves in the Ukraine, hiding from the Nazis. I mean, that's a long time. One of the caves, uh, the priest's grotto, is said to be 77 miles long. That's a cave. All it has to do is a hollow underground or in the, in the ground. So it's not, even in our lifetime, uh, they were pulling it off. We have no reason to doubt. Antichrist will be pretty busy with a lot of things. He probably is going to say, okay, they're in Jordan. I'll get to them. But he's not going to have the time. He's going to be so busy, preoccupied with other things. He thinks he's going to finish this other business and go get them, wipe out whatever Jews are over there. Christ won't give it to him. Uh, it's very easy to see how this all works out. God is in control of everything. He's totally sovereign. And the fact that he has allowed evil to divide the sheep from the goats does not make him evil at all. Every right as a sovereign creator to create a condition that is fair and available. And when God says he is just, he means he is fair. And so if you have a question about the fairness of God, you better err on the side of him being, as Abraham said, the God of all the earth will do right, of the universe. He'll do right. You, you, you never have to worry about that just because you're getting hits in this life, uh, unfairness in this life. Uh, well, we've been warned about all that. Ergo, take up your cross. Verse 6 now. So, so I hope... Uh, well, let's do a little bit more. Verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Now the prophet returns to his immediate time period. He's now talking about the Moabite people. It's common in Scripture to have this sort of a pit stop, this little oasis of prophecy, and then return to the immediate things. And uh, the context is what saves us. Uh, that, so that it's not a free-for-all. But I do think, by faith, you've, you've got to commit to certain verses. We do that with Messiah. We say, that's Messiah. When David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, we all look at that and say, he's talking about Messiah. We don't have to guess at that. Well, there are other sections of Scripture. We have to apply the same approach, the same logic. Jeremiah, he talks about their pride. And, of course, it's what turned an archangel into a devil, pride. That is self-serving pride, the pride that exalts yourself above others, even unto God. We have heard the pride of Moab. So 100 years later, they're still at it. He is exceedingly proud. That's an emphatic insertion. And that's in parentheses in the King, New King James, and which means, again, a parenthesis means this is important. It's not, you know, something that, oh, by the way, is a little detail. No, it's important. That's why it's there. Of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. Again, in Jeremiah 48, verse 42, And Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against Yahweh. And yet, the land of Moab plays into the refuge of God's people. Uh, so, here's another interesting thing. We understand the pride of Babylon. He, God, God understood it, but he wasn't buying it. 
He said to Nebuchadnezzar, if I hear you one more time. <laughs> and he did it one more time. And immediately he was driven from men. And Daniel said, told you. No, he did not. But he warned him. He said, oh, king, you know, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar had a connection. Uh, and he, Daniel wished it wasn't so. But he said, if, if you go mouthing off about this again, you're going to be punished. This is the dream. And he did. Nebuchadnezzar mouthed off, you know, look, this is great Babylon that I built. And at that instant, he was dealt with. But he was restored. Well, you understand the hanging gardens of Babylon, this giant walls there, everything that they did. It is said it would take three days to walk through Babylon. But Moab had nothing to boast. Why is she boasting? Why is she arrogant? This is not hard to believe because we've all met people who have nothing and are arrogant. And they're like, man, what makes you think you're so much better than everybody? You, you should jump to the line and we all should bow down to you. If you, you know. uh, anyhow, the Moab had nothing. Their arrogance kept them from going to Judah for refuge. It was offered and it led to their defeat. Now, verses 7 and 8, are Moab's grief is explained. And then 9 through 12, the grief, the Lord's grief again over Moab. We look at verse 7. Therefore Moab shall wail, uh, wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail. And then bottom of verse 9. <clears throat> for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Well, the harvest is supposed to be a time of festivities. The summer fruits. Uh, these were supposed to be joyful things. But war was in the land. And that all of its horror came with it, uh, unlike Judah, Moab will never be restored as a kingdom, though the people remain to linger for a while after the Assyrians and the Babylon, when, once the Babylon, Babylonians are done with the Moabites, they vanish from history. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the Arab peoples, the mixture of those Arab peoples form what we call the kingdom of Jordan today. There were reasons to rejoice in Moab's judgments, but yet the prophets still, and as does Yahweh, reap, uh, weep over it or just grieves over this. Ezekiel 33, say to them, as I live, says the Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way. And then there's that thrice repeated turn, turn, or twice, not thrice, from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? So there's God appealing to the people to snap out of it. Uh, so we move on, verse 10. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field and the vineyards. There will be no singing, nor will there be shouting, or treaders will, no treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. So there's not going to be any fun. Verse 11, therefore my heart shall resound like a heart from Moab and my inner being for Kerhares, and that's, of course, the, the places of Moab. Verse 12, and it shall come to pass when it, it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. And so their religion fails, their faith fails, the festivity, everything is just total breakdown, catastrophic. Uh, imagine if you're living in the days of Isaiah and you're a Moabite hearing this, 
There are prophecies against Egypt today. Imagine if you're an Egyptian. You've got to reconcile that. You have to say, am I more Egyptian than I am a believer? You've got to, you know, choose sides. What, you know, there are some people that act like America is beyond judgment. You know, Billy Graham said a long time ago, if God doesn't judge America, it's not meaning, it's, it's, I guess, idiomatic. If God doesn't judge America, he'll owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. At the rate we're going, he was saying, there's going to be judgment. And if you were too patriotic to think that God could dare do that, then you don't know your Bible history. Uh, the Bible history is God is no respecter of persons, flat out. You're either with me or you're against me. He doesn't care. Oh, I didn't know you, you were born there. Uh, <laughs> I heard a comedian, a, a very clean comedian, one that I've never heard use any foul language or even topics. I, mean, I have to say that. <laughs> so uh, he said, um, he, he, they're from Nashville, Tennessee. And they were living in New York, I guess when he was establishing himself in the, as a comedian there. And when his daughter was born, they were sure to have her born in Nashville. He said, I didn't want her growing up thinking she was better than us. So, <laughs> not that. <laughs> the, the, the point is, that's not true with God. There's not like, well, you're born here, you're better than these people. It's not even true with us. Those may be perceived. I don't know if I told that right. Let me do it again. No mulligans in the pulpit. Not many. Anyway, for those of you who don't know, a mulligan is in golf. You say, can I have a do-over shot? Sure, that's a mulligan. But some guys, you know, they act like they're on the PGA. So, no, we're playing with illustration. It's like, I'm not playing with you anymore. Anyhow. Uh, verse 13 this is the word which Yahweh has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now, verse 14, Yahweh has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. And, and again, they were small and feeble. The Babylonians uh, just didn't have a problem absorbing them. It's interesting, he says, within three years, uh, according to a hired man, he's saying there's nothing spiritual about this. He said, this is three years as three 360-day cycles. Again, the calendar of the Jew was 360 days, not 365 days. Uh, and, and that's when you calculate years in the scripture, you have to use the 360, not the 365. That's why I take 360 home, Route 360. It's biblical. Uh, back to this, Isaiah 17, now we go. This is now Syria. We've done with Moab. Whew. Uh, that wasn't too bad. Uh, now we deal with Syria. Um, and verse 1, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. Well, Damascus is still there. What do you mean? Where does this fit? Is this, does this mean that in the end times... Damascus will not survive the Great Tribulation period, which is very likely. Whole cities are going to be, I mean, one nuclear sub can wipe out 24 cities in, in a few minutes. Uh, so nothing is difficult to believe about this. Syria is still at war with, I don't even know who they're fighting anymore. <laughs> anyway, because, you know, it's just so many, so much silly stuff. Back to this. 
Does this mean that the boundaries established by Yahweh to Abraham for the descendants of Abraham, Abraham, which includes Damascus, does it mean that in the millennial reign, that's what was going to happen? Genesis 15, 18. Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. You know, Ariel Sharon was that Jewish general. He was about to march on Cairo. He was about to extend Israel's borders past the, the, uh, the great river of Egypt, the Red Sea, and into Egypt. And, of course, the Americans, oh, please stop. Don't. <laughs> and he, they, they backed out. But that's actually biblical, um, that their border is not to enter into to Egypt's territory. God gave it from the Dead Sea, uh, not the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, because they've got the red, the dead, and the med. Mediterranean, the Dead Sea, and the Red Sea. That's how it goes. Anyhow, uh, is this saying Damascus will be uh, will no longer be a city? When? Okay, there's, there's two, two ways to see it. Again, they won't survive the Great Tribulation, and then the Jews will take that, and it will be theirs, and Damascus as a city will never be rebuilt. Or today, uh, you know, there are many ancient cities that have fallen to ruins, and were not rebuilt on that same footprint. Maybe, you know, a few thousand yards or a mile away, they rebuilt and, and kept retained the name. Jerusalem, however, and others, have been rebuilt on the exact same footprint. Jericho has not been, as laid out prophetically. Uh, so you've got two options. You can say, well, the ancient city of Damascus is gone, and there are no archaeologists that can deny that or attest to it. But there are ruins around Damascus that could have been the city in Isaiah's day. That's one. I like the other one. Uh, they both could be true, actually. But I think that um, in the end times, Damascus will not survive the wars, the, cat the cat uh, catastrophes of the great tribulation period, such as the world is not seen. Don't ever forget that part. What is coming is going to make, uh, you know, global warming look like nothing. The fear, the, you know, the fear of those who fear. Anyhow, back to this. It is very tempting to pick on certain people who have views that are really unfounded or misguided, have elements of truth, but let's not do it. Verse 2. You could say, what do you mean, let's? You're the one talking. The cities of Aror, Aror, that's, I think, how it is pronounced. You know, in preparation, I go through all these names for pronunciation. And then at the end, I said, why don't I just skip it? <laughs> the cities are forsaken. They, are all, uh, they will all be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. So now he's, he's actually going back to the Syrian... Israel alliance. This is before the northern kingdom was taken away. You have to know the history of the Jews to follow this. That requires a lot of study time. Uh, but anyway, he's getting Damascus and Israel joined together to fight Assyria. And then they said to Judah, join us too. And Judah said, no, I'm not doing that. Then they said, well, we're going to come with our armies. We're going to force you to join with us against Assyria. 
And Judah says, I'm not joining with you. In fact, I'm going to join with Assyria. And that's what they did. Assyria came down and beat those two into nothing. He went right to work on the Jews, the Philistines, Damascus, Syria. And in 10 years, he finally got to Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, which was a natural fortification. And so, verse 3, the fortress also will cease from Ephraim. That's that natural fortification of Samaria. Ephraim, a reference to the northern tribes. The kingdom from Damascus, that alliance, and the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says Yahweh of hosts. So that glory will be, the the Syrians will have a remnant that survives. It's in a positive in verse 3. But when you get to verse 4, now we are there. In that day, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. And so in verse 3, it was positive. The glory was going to be survivors in spite of the judgments. But in verse 4, the glory of Israel has departed. And they did when the Assyrians carried them off. Uh, That waning glory because of their wandering hearts, idolatry did this to them. Uh, it made the Jewish kingdoms underachievers because they had the wrong God. Uh, the wrong God matters, and that's part of our message. You're not allowed to have the wrong God and get away with it. Regardless of how messed up you are, uh, you can still have the right God. And that would be some of those Christians that are very difficult people. Uh, but yet, they know who the Lord is, and they're just carnal. Uh, Paul did not hurl out anathemas to those who were giving him a hard time because of their carnality. But when they messed with the doctrine, that became a different issue. Uh, And that's true even into the book of Revelation when the Lord addresses the churches and he says, I'm going to do violence to you because of their doctrine. Anyway, you can have right doctrine and just, you know, be weak. Uh, Verse 5, it shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads of uh, the heads with the arm. It shall be that he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Well, what he's the the kingdoms are going to be stripped bare, everything cut down. The people like in a harvest, what you do to a harvest is going to happen to the people. This metaphor, verse 6. So he continues in verse 6. We don't really have to read some of these verses because it's just a more detailed explanation unless you want to hear me pronounce the bow and the branches. Verse 7, And in that day a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. Always like the prophets, looking for the solution, searching for the solution. And it should be that way with us. The hardship of God's judgments would be severe. The rod of correction is to lead to repentance, and uh, the remnant of Israel throughout the ages attest to that. In verse 8, he says, he will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. So Isaiah is saying, you know those things you like so much right now, you people of Judah? You, you know, you've inherited the Canaanite altars. You make your little gods with your little crafty fingers. And you think you're so creative and impressing somebody. 
Well, we're going to stop doing that one day. One day our people won't do the dumb things you're doing and making God angry with them. And so, you know, here he is. Uh, he's not a pundit. He's a prophet. He's speaking against his people and their aberrant behaviors. And the righteous Jews would be applauding. Thank you, God, for Isaiah. Thank you that there's somebody on our side. And then they would also have Micah at, at this time. And then to the north, they'd have Hosea. And so the, the real people struggling with evil in the land. Uh, so that's he will not look to those altars. That day is coming. Now, in verse 9 and 10, this is the interesting thing in verse 10. But you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Uh, is that not what the Lord was saying to the churches in Revelation that were wandering? Did Sardis, he said, you have a name, you're alive, that you're dead. But he did say to Sardis, but you've got some folks there, they stick with me. And he said, thank you, Lord. You, you can come across a church that, you know, just beneath what you would like them to be, and yet in that church are some solid believers. And you want to say, why don't you... Come out of that weak church, join a stronger church, and make them stronger. Well, you have no right to do that. God puts people where he needs them because he knows what he's doing. And uh, anyway, uh, it's interesting. They had forgotten the God of their salvation, as did Ephesus, as did Laodicea, Pergamos, and Thyatira, uh, and uh, Sardis. Those churches, too, forgot the God of their salvation, and Jesus gave them a chance to come back. This uh, reference to the rock, of course, Deuteronomy 32.4, lets us know that's Yahweh, picks up in the New Testament and is applied to Jesus. Verse 11, in that day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So those who have forgotten their God reminds us of Haggai, Haggai the prophet says, listen, you guys are having a good life, but you're not building the house of God. You have no worship in your life. Why? Because you've been intimidated out of worship. And though you're not intimidated about building your houses, you're living in pretty good houses. You're taking care of your family. What about the family of God? And so he says, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you do not, are not filled with, with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to be put in a bag with holes. He's saying you can't find satisfaction, can you? You got all these uh, material things going in your favor, and yet you're miserable. And Haggai says, because you're not building the house of God. And Zechariah comes right along with Haggai. He's the younger prophet, and he, he you know, gives visions. And uh, the two were successful. The house of God was rebuilt after 15 years. Verse 12. Woe to the multitude of people who make a noise like the roar of the seas into the, rushing, uh, into the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. Now, that woe is not the typical woe. It shows up later. It's more of a word that summons attention. Hey, kind of like, hey, <laughs> pay attention to what I'm saying. And we come across that in Isaiah 5. Hey, if anyone's thirsty, come to the waters. You know, Verse 13 um, well, verse 13 is sort of an echo of verse 12. And verse 14, then behold, the eventide trouble. And before the morning, he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. So in closing, you, the prophet is saying, God rules the nations. Those who 
or come against us, God will deal with them. But, of course, reading between the lines in the right ways, yes, God will deal with those nations, but how much suffering, unnecessary suffering, takes place because of their wrong God approach. And it's true to this day. How many, uh, how many countries are there that are in a perpetual state of war? There's always combat. One warlord against another warlord. And it just doesn't stop. Any kind of United Nation relief that's sent to them goes to the warlords, not the people. The people stay suffering because they're wrong gods. And it's, uh, it's a very real problem. The Isaiah is saying those nations that trouble the Jewish people, God's going to deal with them. But he is not at all sweeping under the rug the evil the people commit uh, in Israel against their God. Let's pray. I hope that wasn't too bad. Uh, If it was, don't tell me. Let's, Let's play a game. We'll keep it a mystery. Let's pray. Our Father, this information cost the prophet Isaiah. These were things you gave to him. They did not fall short of their fulfillment. Some in his day, others he, he did not live to see. Jeremiah picks up where he leaves off, and yet there's more to come. Uh, these things belong to you, and we are grateful for them, albeit sometimes difficult to understand. We appreciate the collective word of God, the whole counsel of God. May you get us home safely, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.